0: Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. This is your host, uh, C. Travis Webb, editor of The American Age. And this is our second installment in our new series called Notes on the American Age, where each of us independently uh, do a off-the-cuff take on a hopefully current topic. Um, this week's episode is on the... Uh, Nicki Minaj, uh, incident, uh, that happened on September 13th. Um, I'm gonna give you a brief intro to, uh, the subject, which I'm sure no one listening to this actually needs because, you know, it kind of made its way around, uh, the world and was in a lot of news sites. Uh, uh the, the quick take is, uh, Nicki Minaj, uh, the Trinidadian, uh, rap artist. Uh, basically on Monday said that she was not, uh, this is after having, um, uh, discussed her lack of attendance at the Met Gala because she had not been, uh, previous or because she was not vaccinated. And on the 13th, she tweeted, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're un- you're comfortable with your decision. Not bullied. Um, as you can imagine, uh, there was a tremendous response uh, to this tweet. Um, obviously from her fans as well, who this past week uh, protested at the CDC saying that they trusted the Nicki Minaj's judgment on the vaccine more than uh, they trusted the CDC's judgment. Um, So I'll leave it at that. Um, You know, as kind of an intro. If if you're interested, you know, there's a lot of ink has been uh, spilled over this story. So you can find a lot of analysis. Um, uh, We'll run into our individual takes on it after this. And uh, as always, thanks very much for listening.
1: This is Seth Rodney. I am a senior critic at the Hyperallergic Blogazine. And I was the editor of, or am the editor of, the Personalization of the Museum Visit by Routledge Press, which came out in 2019. And I'm coming to you from the Bahamas today. We are talking about Nicki Minaj, and I'm giving you my note on what's happened lately with her, on what I think about what's happened with her. It's hard for me to have anything good to say about Nicki Minaj in this instance. It just feels like American culture, American, US American popular culture is really stuck on repeat. In terms of having celebrities weigh in on issues of which they know very little about. This has happened before, I'm sure it will happen again. In this instance, though, it's particularly appalling, distressing, because Nicki Minaj reportedly has 22 million Twitter followers and 152 million followers on Instagram. So the harm that she's doing is significant. With spreading this vaccine misinformation. Uh, my boss at work, Harag Vartanian, pointed out that he thought what she was doing was particularly pernicious because she has younger followers. Nicki Minaj is a Trinidadian rap artist. And she's 38, but her followers, um, I think she on social media she calls them the Barbs, because she sometimes calls herself Barbie. She has a lot of followers that are really young, uh, he pointed out, and I think that's true. And uh, when she does things like doxing reporters who, who are trying to find out more information to give to the general public about this issue and writes things like, as she did in one story post, quote, Charlene Rampersad, bitch, your days are fucking numbered, you dirty hoe. At least according to the Daily Beast. That's a problem. I wish there was more to say about this than this is just a problem, but I don't know that I have anything else. I find it, it's just really disappointing that someone with that much power, with that much social reach, and be so irresponsible with it. And I want to say, you know, we've talked about this, we have talked about this on the American Age before, that there is something deeply adolescent about our culture. We love the power, we love the ability to have the kind of reach that Nicki Minaj has with millions of people, but we don't know how to wield that power well. We don't know how to wield it responsibly. We end up saying really silly things that are just unhelpful. And I wish we would grow up. And do I wish Nicki Minaj would grow up? And I wish she'd stop spreading rumors. I wish she'd realize that regardless of her personal concerns about taking the COVID-19 vaccine, she really does have the ear of millions of people. And what she says matters to them. I wish that she and people like her, i.e., celebrities, had a better sense of just how destructive they can be in their complete ignorance. Oh, I hate this story. And I would be glad never to have anything to do with Nicki Minaj ever again. I would like. In fact, never to hear her name again. And that's me, signing off.
0: So this week, for Notes on the American Age, we're talking about Nicki Minaj, as you all know from listening to the intro. You know, obviously, this story got a lot of discussion on social media and in mainstream legacy media outlets. So, you know, I thought a little bit about what, you know, could an alternative take look like or what what could I add to the conversation you know, obviously people have talked about that there's no evidence that the vaccine uh causes things like impotence or infertility as Fauci described it uh even though that wasn't actually the accusation they're not the same thing but that's fine you know the White House reached out and wanted to collect you know this is uh, correct the the record and all this you know sort of vaccine misinformation um, you know, and so, yes, there is that. I mean, this anecdotal account of Nicki Minaj's uh, friend of a, her cousin's friend or something like that, you know, clearly should not be taken as a scientific data point. But that doesn't mean that it's not an interesting addition to the conversation. So I'd like to situate Minaj's comments in the context of oral culture, uh, which, you know, it might seem uh, ill-fitting to describe Twitter or Facebook or social media as oral culture, but I think it is much closer to oral culture than written culture. In fact, I think that's kind of what gets us into... uh, a mess around these issues. So there's a concept in in the digital studies and the social sciences called secondary orality, which is that basically, you know, social media is much closer to speech, but because it's written, we give it the weight of you know something that's written down, which for most of our culture meant something that had you know a, a great deal of of weight uh, and you know was generally considered more serious, even if it shouldn't have been considered that. So I think it's fair uh, to talk about. What Minaj said in the context of oral culture, um, oral cultures—you know—for many progressives and liberals, I mean, this was kind of one of the hallmarks of historiography of the last, like, kind of forty years, starting in the late twentieth century. We needed to take oral culture seriously. We needed to listen to alternative histories other than people who had, you know, proper imprimitors and PhDs, and you know, had had read all the studies, you know, prior to them, we needed to collect and listen and honor and pay attention to uh, to oral history, which, to be clear, I actually think is fair. I, I think this was a positive innovation. I think that oral histories are recorded in a way that is different than written histories. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't valuable information to be gleaned from them even if they should be interrogated and inspected and should not be taken at face value. One example that the, uh, in the study in, in history that has benefited from uh, oral history and histori this kind of historiography is the history of slavery. Um, So we've gotten a lot of rich information uh, from, uh, from the history of, uh, from the oral history of, of slavery in the Americas, the Atlantic slave trade, Uh, stories that were passed down and recorded, uh, by people who heard them. Um, obviously, oral history is a big part of the defund the the police movement. I mean, the research around this is, is not nearly as compelling as individual, uh, black. And brown Americans accountings of how they are being treated by the police. And these things should be should be taken seriously. Again, they should be interrogated. They should be evaluated. They shouldn't be taken as gospel. um, But clearly, they're an important piece of information. So as an analog, you know, let's take something like the zombie story right so it was it was a legend in haiti and you know 17th 18th 19th century it came you know it it made its way into voodooan um uh mythology the zombie its or, or it's speculated that its origins came from the 17th century slave trade so when the igbo and igbo peoples and yoruba and other west african slaves were brought into haiti and were made to labor for hours and hours out of the day 7 days a week you know very few days off um and were brutalized and abused and raped and all of these other horrible things that went along with the slave trade um this legend this myth of the zombie arose, which was the original The original myth of it is that a zombie could be controlled. So if you were murdered in a properly magical ritualistic way, what it meant is that you would come back from the dead and you would still have to work. So death itself was not a release from being a slave. So, I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, the horror of horrors is compounded. So not even death is a release from slavery. And so, is it literally true that they that there were uh, zombies? I'm sure most of us would agree that no, clearly there are not real zombies. But did this story convey a very critical piece of information? Is this a valuable piece of oral history, the story that got passed down and eventually recorded? That the conditions were so bad that people imagined that not even death would be a release from them. I would say that that's a pretty valuable thing for us to understand about the way that people were navigating the terrors of slavery. I mean, this should put this, this story, you know, the, the popularity of this story should put to rest any notion that slave conditions were not that bad, for example. It's pretty bad if you think that death is not going to get you out of this awful situation that you're in. So this example of, of, of what began as an oral history, a story, tells us something incredibly valuable about what life was like then. If we put Nicki Minaj's comments in the, in a contemporary context and look at it from that way, I think it significantly shifts The conversation around it. So Nicki Minaj's role here isn't, I mean, yes, she's a Trinidadian, uh, you know, artist. So she's a a prominent black artist, but, but she isn't just serving a function in the black community anymore. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a solid argument to be made that, you know, American pop culture is essentially black pop culture, but that's kind of a separate discussion. I mean, she's serving of, she is, she is mimicking she is reproducing, she is representing, she is a cipher for the anxiety that currently exists in non-elite America around COVID and distrust of the authorities and distrust of traditional institutions. And so let's think about Nicki Minaj in that context. First of all, Nicki Minaj had recovered from COVID. So she's a, she had COVID and is now carded, part of this sort of the tribe of millions of Americans that are being cajoled and shamed into getting a vaccination for something that, the overwhelming amount of medical evidence suggests isn't necessary it's not necessary to be vaccinated after you've had the disease maybe down the road it'll turn out that it's necessary maybe t and b cell memories or t and b memory cells you know won't pan out or or it won't um, the immunity won't be as robust down the road i don't know that no one knows that but In the context of someone who has dealt with COVID, who has lived through this, she probably wouldn't have cared at all to reproduce this story of distrust in in traditional institutions if her circumstances were being taken seriously by those same elites, by those same institutions. So. Think about the number of things that people who are not in positions of power, who are not entirely plugged into the repeating echo chamber of COVID, um, of the COVID narrative in contemporary America. So, you know, it went from flatten the curve. So, uh, you know, no – let me, let me correct that again. It went from flatten the curve in order to save hospitals when, in spite of all of the reporting, no hospitals were actually overrun in the United States. I'm not saying in the globe they weren't, although there isn't strong evidence for that either people running out of ventilators. No one actually ran out of. And if you don't believe the sort of the the facts that I'm repeating here, please Google them, look them up. Uh, I would encourage everyone to do their own independent research. Uh, But these things are actually not true. People were shamed early on for taking the Wuhan lab leak seriously and said that they were racist because because the Wuhan lab leak meant that we were somehow uh, racist against the Chinese, although I'm not really clear on why saying it came from them eating weird animals in a wet market wouldn't lead to more racism. But let's bracket that also. the You know, masking, you know, masking is going to save us. Masking is going to save us. And if you look at uh, the distribution of COVID in the country in areas with high mask versus low masking, uh, the data is very mixed. There are two random control trials around masking. You know, One shows that there's some modest effect from using surgical masks and zero effect from using cloth masks. Yet when I go out and about and I see people in masks, I typically see them in cloth masks. I don't need to go through the long list of contentious truisms that are repeated superciliously by people who are deeply invested in a COVID narrative. You Probably many of you listening probably don't agree with my perspective on that. And I'm fine with that. I don't have to convince you of that in this context, though I would, you know, I would certainly welcome an opportunity to. Uh, It's that the number of contested items, the number of ways that people have been shamed, the meanness that is permeating the culture around COVID, the fault lines that have emerged around this. Uh, I mean, the, the, the working class, or you know, if we are to map sort of COVID skepticism onto the working class, which is probably uh, an oversimplification, um, I would say probably more people that are just not connected to elite culture and elite epistemologies, meaning like elite publications, newspapers, periodicals, things like that. The fact that they feel like they are outside of this discussion, I think, is readily apparent. Readily apparent to anyone with eyes and ears. And Minaj is clearly a part of that. And the reaction of people to what she said on either side is is just representative of how fractured and fraught and complicated that our Cultural response to the pandemic has become, and Minaj is an interesting window into the depth of that skepticism. No, of course I don't think I've never I haven't read anything that would seem to suggest that this is a uh, a common side effect to taking the vaccine, swollen testicles, etc. And of course, any number of examples, any number of these stories around vaccine side effect and microchips and all this kind of stuff. Of course, this is not like factually real, just like zombies weren't factually correct. But yet, they told us something very relevant and very important about the people who are being affected by these policies. um, And the effect of our collective elite disdain of people who do not fit into our version of proper behavior. Uh, so anyway, that's my uh, that's my note uh, on Nicki Minaj's tweet for this week. Uh, as always, uh, I very much appreciate that uh, you're listening. I don't actually know where I'll fall in the order when this gets edited in. So thanks for uh, listening to The American Age, and uh, you'll catch up with us next week, if uh, you do,
2: when we have our hour-long uh, discussion. Thanks very much. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, and here's my take on Nicki Minaj's tweet that went around the world. Dear Nicki, my darling Nicki, I feel for you. I do. I want to reach out and give you a nice hug and offer you some advice. Probably unnecessary because in the last, I don't know, 48 hours or three days or more. You've been getting a response to your vaccine comment, which is, I think, misconstrued as anti-vaccine. Unfortunately, first, we just didn't need to know what you thought about the uh, COVID-19 or the vaccine. We didn't really need to know. You deserve a space that's not social media to work this stuff out, even though it can be productive at times. But everybody doesn't need to know what you think. And I sympathize with you because I will never, ever be as famous as you. I will never sell as many uh, units, which 100 million, I think, is what you've sold so far, according to the record. You're 38 years old. You're a mom. You're a wife. And you are just a really dynamic person. Again, everybody doesn't need to know what you think. I'm on your side when it comes to the idea that you, do, you wouldn't get the, the vaccine for the Met. Smart. Get it for yourself. Get it for your family. Get it so and and no. But here's some things I think you should need to consider. And one is that there's just too many layers when you put something out on social media. Social media is forever, regardless if you delete it. So what you do is that there become so many comments on the comments on the comments on the comments that we at times, or at least the public, has a hard time pulling apart. I think the hyper-focus on what pop stars or what anyone who might have a little bit of fame can be a bit distracting or, or lead away from what you might have originally said. And so... Here are the layers. You have the White House saying that they would offer you a call when you said you were going to the White House or had been invited to the White House. There's Trinidad tracking down your story and also debunking it as well. Then there are the countless number of people who feel like they had a need to not just correct you or offer information, but to put you down and call you out your name. I hate that. Misinformation goes out into the universe like a sexually transmitted disease, which is what I suspect your cousin has, or excuse me, your cousin's friend. And even the construction of that, my cousin's friend had an experience a little too far removed for you to speak about with any authority, which I think is something you should think about not doing in the future. I was reading an article in Vox magazine that I think really is useful to you or useful to all of us, actually. And it gives us some sensibility and context about what why people feel the way they do about vaccine hesitancy, particularly Black people. So it says, quote, Minaj's pushback against pro-vaccine rhetoric isn't unique to her by any means. Black communities, and I'm a Black man, have endured centuries of being ruthlessly exploited, lied to, and sometimes used in unethical medical experiments without their knowledge or consent. They've been subject to blatantly racist and medical practices, all the while continuing to bear some of the worst effects of health epidemics, including COVID-19. This is important for us to think about because, yes, it explains some of the hesitancy. And also hopes, I only read that because I think it maybe we need to be a lot more kinder to each other when we're talking about public health issues, pandemics, and so forth. We can't be just nasty to someone because the nastiness doesn't get us anywhere. And also, you just double down. You know, the original person, in this case, you, doubles down on their original stuff. I also want to say something about this notion of research. Again, I'm quoting the Vox article. Mickey, uh, about what you said, I mean, what they're thinking, the particular artist said about you and your um, sensibility. Quote, Minaj's insistence on doing her own research reflects collective COVID-19 anxiety. The problem with doing one's own research is that, as Minaj tweets reveal, many people who haven't spent years researching viruses and vaccines don't have the scientific knowledge needed to evaluate vaccine efficacy without the help of experts. A huge part of the effort to curb COVID-related misinformation has been about trying to get people to understand that vaccination research isn't something that many people can just sit down and do on their own. Trying to do so may lead the researchers to pockets of misinformation that result in a citizen being more poorly informed, not better informed about the actual health risk of vaccines, unquote. Very important to think about. We have experts because experts have spent time doing this. This is at the strikes at the heart of vaccine hesitancy right now. This is what I wish for you, Nicki Minaj whether you decide to get vaccinated, and for those of us who are vaccinated and those who are not, is to consider reading, but also thinking about reading against what you want to believe, okay? The hesitancy is fine. Um, suspicion is fine. In fact, what I've heard people do on their Facebook page is say, I have a healthy distrust of the government. I have a healthy distrust of medicine, but I got the vaccine, And between those two points is a world of information about thinking through what's important to you and also considering, well, if you decide not to get the vaccine, then be prepared to deal with this. If you decide to get the vaccine, be prepared to do this. Think through and make a choice that's based on your own health, like you said, Nikki, not for the Met, but for yourself. is very important. I wish you health, I wish you thoughtfulness, and most of all, I wish you a space where you can think about these things without public interference. Thank you.